this new Paseo's journey, both in a practical way, uh, if you saw Doug's amazing video of us riding out on the Paseo Pass, uh, but also in this story of our journey together as a congregation. The newness of our time reflected in this journey that God has in store for us as a people of faith. What will it mean for us to take these bold steps together out as a new people? We started this whole journey a few weeks ago talking about our identity, that all of our trips know what our starting location is, and in the life of faith it's about knowing a God who knows you. It begins with an activity of God who loves you deeply and allows you to grow into that process. We talked about preparation two weeks ago, the idea of what we might put in our bag of faith, those things that challenge our faith, that strengthen our faith, those things that we need like scripture and prayer, which help us to know the lay of our course and our journey. Last week, we had the chance to talk about community, the importance of small groups and connecting with one another, and to realize that the journey of faith, the paseo of faith, is best accomplished in community and with good companions. And today, we talk about recalculating. What happens when the journey that we're taking winds up being not where we expected, where we run into detours and roadblocks, bridges out ahead, and do we move through that process with a sense of confidence that says, yeah, I'll believe that bridge is out when I'm falling into the valley, or do we learn how to readjust our journey together? Navigation is a powerful and historic part of human history. The idea that we would somehow learn to get from place to place and not just have the confidence of where we are. Working kind of backwards through time, I think we're all more and more comfortable every day navigating by our electronics. Whether it's a heads-up display in your car or a phone that you use, whether it's Google Maps, Waze, MapQuest, Yahoo Maps, uh, Apple Maps, uh, asking your spouse or partner to say, where are we going? Uh, however it is, we are navigating with these contemporary resources. And we have a high level of trust in those. Particularly as the new kid in town, if, if I put in a destination that I need to get to, I just live with a sense of trust and assurance that my little cell phone's going to get me where I need to go. But that hasn't always been the case. Summer of 97, I was cleaning carpets with Mike Satterfield as a summer job. He was my roommate. And we had Thomas guides any Thomas guides having all those wire-bound, beautiful maps. And the way it would work is when we'd finish a job, we'd call into dispatch, and we would give them our grid location. This is where we'd finished. And they'd give us a new grid location and a page number, and we'd flip ferociously and figure out where in, in that Dallas-Fort Worth area we were supposed to be next. And it was up to us. We used our brains to figure out how to go from one grid spot to another grid spot in a timely fashion to clean some lovely old lady's carpet. Rewind just a little bit in our common history. Cartography is a bold human enterprise. The idea that we would have the audacity to try and frame out our space and to say, this is what it looks like, and this is the distance from one thing to another, and how you might capably get from that. Map making is a beautiful human enterprise. But before there were maps, there were adventurers, those who were just willing to risk a sense of boldness and explore. And the true history of navigation starts with sailors who are willing to go past the water's edge, almost like Moana, and to see what was out there. Maybe there were monsters waiting. They didn't know. But they would use the sun and the stars as navigational tools 
to provide a sense of direction. If you're standing in the middle of anywhere, the direction the sun moves will tell you something about east and west. And if you know the time of the year, the shadow fall at noon will tell you something about where north and south is. You can use the sun itself to provide some reference for where you are. At night, you can use the position of the stars and their orientation in the sky and where you are in a hemisphere to tell you something. And so discoverers, travelers, navigators would use those resources and specialized tools to know their position. It helped them to build confidence, to move out from a place. Because the earliest traveling was done in sight of the shore. You wanted to know that you could get back to where you started or to be able to find a safe harbor. So the earliest traveling was literally along shore's edge to get to know your environment, but to always trust that you could see where land was. If you know where you are and where you're headed, the worst feeling you can have is feeling lost. Do any of you have within your history and your body this morning a powerful story of when you were lost? I'm talking some of that metaphysical sense too, you know, I feel lost from God or lost in a relationship, but truly deeply in a place that was not familiar or surrounded by people you did not recognize. For me, the earliest memory I have of being lost is that experience of being kind of a toddler and being in a shopping mall and reaching up for a hand that I trust to guide me and taking a few steps and then looking up and realizing that is not the face I was expecting. (laughs) Your whole world changes when that happens because you thought you were grounded and rooted in something that you could trust and yet you found yourself suddenly confused and looking around. My parents tell the worst stories about me when I was growing up. I was the kid that would love to hide inside the clothes racks and then not respond to my mom's anxious calls of my name. Oh, I was the worst. As a parent, that feeling of losing a child is terrifying. That fear bubbles up from within, from that sense of, I thought I knew right where I was. I thought I knew right where my child was. I thought I knew right where my cell phone was. There is no worse modern experience than leaving your house without your phone. I used to have nightmares about public speaking without pants on. That's not it. Now the deep and abiding fear is if I get more than about 50 yards from my house without my cell phone, I feel naked and alone. They should just put me on the Discovery Channel. People can't get a hold of me. My wife can't use Find My Friends to figure out where I'm going. How can I possibly survive without my iPhone in my pocket? It's a terrible feeling. But what happens when we know exactly where we are? When we know exactly where we're headed, and yet something in the circumstance of life rears its ugly head such that we go, oh no, I was wrong. Out of my confidence and capacity to travel through the world, to move through, let's call it the great forest of life with such clarity and such purpose, and then to look around and go, I don't know where I am anymore. With that in mind, let's take a look at our text for this morning. It comes from the Gospel of Mark, and it might feel like an odd one to you, but I just want it to sit with us for a little bit this morning. It's a story of a a rich young man, a rich young ruler, if you will. As Jesus was starting on his way, a man came up to him and fell on his knees before him. 
Good teacher, the man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Well, teacher, declares the boy, I have kept all of those since I was a young boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, go, sell everything you have, give it to poor, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God this morning. This is one of those texts where if you finish at that spot, you get a little kind of, you know, squirrely in your spine. To say the word of God has something to say about my sense of value and my worth, the wealth that I might have. This rich young ruler had such confidence in the life that he had led. He had been a good little boy all these many years. That first sentence, teacher, all of these I've kept, all of those commandments of who God was. I had done the right thing, not once, but again and again and again. He had such confidence in his faithfulness and in his capacity. This was someone who had nothing to fear. Not only had he been righteous in the eyes of God, he was wealthy. He didn't have to worry about where his next meal would come from or whether or not people would respect him in the street. He'd been following the map. And yet when he runs into Jesus and asks about this experience of eternal life, the last sentence says he went away sad because he had great wealth. He was called upon to weigh value in his life between his own satisfaction and satisfying the needs of others, his own wealthiness and prosperity, and the ways in which his life might be used to serve another, his own experience of his self-righteousness by just checking off some list of what God expects to be good and having a fuller relationship with a God who is, in fact, great. And the rich young ruler has to recalculate. All of the wheels in his head start spinning. If he had an iPhone, it would say buffering, buffering, rerouting, rerouting, trying to figure out who he was in the grand scheme of things. When we get lost in these new paseos, when we get lost in our relationship, it's tough. It's soul-wrenching time. Whether it's because we've ignored clear warning signs, bridge out ahead, crew working on the soul, whatever the case might be, or whether it's out of ignorance, or whether or not it is something that life has thrown at you, a new medical diagnosis, an unexpected divorce, new challenges, termination at work that was not a consequence of your choice, but something well beyond your control, the loss of a child, the loss of a parent. All of these are things which disrupt the flow of our expectations in life such that we find ourselves lost. It's possible we get there from ignoring warnings, but it is entirely possible that no tsunami warning comes for what has caused us to need to recalculate. I want to say a word about sin this morning. We've been together almost 60 days. We can have a conversation about sin together. I love sin. Now, don't put that as my byline quote on the YouTube video, but I love the concept of sin. 
I want us to all be on the same page when it comes to what we mean when it talks about sin. My understanding of sin is a fracturing of the relationships that I talked about last week. That vertical relationship with God, that horizontal relationships with others. If something causes fracture in either of those dynamics, it is sinful. And you can lay into that all of the great sins, even the ones that the young ruler said, I never did any of that. I honored my parents. I never committed adultery. I never defrauded anyone. Those are missing the marks in the relationships that we have and in the relationship we have with God. The word sin in the New Testament comes from an archery term called missing the mark, right? And this young man, coached by a parent, is doing his darndest to hit the bullseye. He's got a great intent. He's going to loose that arrow in the hopes that it's just going to zing right where he wants it to go. Would you help me out, Bradley? You're a capable guy. Jump up for me. Come and hold my basket. Right, but he looks so nervous. I promise. It's, it's going to go fine. Right there. Perfect. Sometimes sin is about our best effort and intent. I intend for my sin ball to go into Bradley's basket. I do a whole bunch of physics calculation. I test the flow of the air conditioning. I do everything in my mind and power to get this right where I want it to go. It rimmed out. Oh, I know. It's, Mark's right. There's nothing worse. There's nothing worse in life, says the rich young ruler, than trying your best every time, every day to do the right thing and yet still feeling like you missed. Brother, I want you to go all the way back to the back of the church there with my basket. <laughs> Some of us feel like the expectations and the hopes that God has for our lives is like an immaculate dream shot. And we might be able to come up with ways to get my ball from here to Bradley. Maybe it would be better served as a paper airplane or better aerodynamics. And it may be that, you know, if I just tried hard enough and I trained long enough, I could throw it in such a way that I'd almost get there. Sin sometimes feels like the mark that God has for us is so far away that we can't possibly live into that. And the good news is, is that grace gets us all the way there. Stay right there, brother. I got one more for you. And then I promise you can sit down. Here's the thing that I think breaks the heart of God. That's why I love sin. And if I'm being honest and confessional with y'all, it's the sin that I probably do more often than not. Insofar as I know my life and my intent. I know the hope that God has. And too often than not, it looks like this. I go the other way. I don't have any intention of landing anywhere near what God meant for me. It's not my best effort on an easy thing. It's not my strongest effort on something that seems too far away. I'm just willful. Thank you, Bradley. You can sit back down. You make an excellent basket holder. Oh, look at that. You're hired. Thank you. <laughs> if that's a breaking and fracturing of our relationships, and those are the places in life where we find ourselves missing the mark and needing to kind of recalculate with our relationship, what we have need for is a new spiritual orientation. We use the word repentance to talk about that. 
John Wesley used the word justification to talk about that, what it means to be right and holy, to make the work of God such that the basket comes to us because we know we are forgiven by God's grace. But really what it is is a matter of orientation, of getting ourselves realigned, recalculating such that we can find ourselves back on the path that God has for us. The story that the young ruler is involved in ends in a powerful way. Jesus says, oh, how hard it will be for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. It will be like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And his disciples, rightly so, see themselves in that story. Well, if this righteous kid can't get in, and it's that hard for anybody to get into the kingdom, how can we possibly get into the kingdom of God? They take what is true of him and make it about me. We do that so often. Internalize that struggle. And the beauty of this gospel passage is that it ends with Jesus saying, you're getting it all wrong. It's not about how hard you want to try to get to God's goal. It's about realizing that for things that we try to do, they might come up as impossible or unlikely or improbable, but for God, all things are possible. What we need to do is to cut through the noise and the nuisance of our lives to get back on track with what God has in store for us in the most vulnerable places in our lives where we feel most anxious and afraid because either we've screwed up or the world has messed with our expectations, it is then that we need to listen most closely to where God is trying to speak to our hearts and lives. Because we might find ourselves needing a course correction. The analogy I use in confirmation for our young people is this. If you were to jump on the 5 North and just start driving, with the intention of getting to Phoenix, Arizona, you'd never get there. You could have the best of all possible intents. You could have, like, I'm traveling to Phoenix, you know, written on the back window of the car, honk if you love Phoenix. You could have Arizona license plates. But if you see signs that say San Francisco 12 miles, you're not getting to Phoenix. It requires a reorientation, a turning again. It's literally what repent means. Pent has to do with turning, to turn again in the direction that God calls us. That reorientation allows us to get back to where God would have us. One quick image that works for me. In 1999-2000, I had the opportunity to work at the cable station for the uh, Claremont McKenna Colleges that was housed on our seminary campus. It's kind of an evening student job, and it was cool. I know it sounds nerdy, but it was cool. Dish Network has spoiled us, right? Because we all have these dishes at our home that point to the southern horizon on a clear day. It's just a whole series of satellites doing this beautiful dance to hand things off so that we never miss a single second of the amazing race because it's done so well. When I was in grad school, we had an actual satellite dish. And it was my job, based on the programming notes from somebody whose pay grade was above mine, to dial in that dish to get the programming that we were supposed to have. So I'd sometimes have to connect with the PBS satellite, sometimes I had to connect with a different satellite, and I would punch in this code in a machine in a small room, and that old dish would go, It moved really slow and really noisy until it would line up with the satellite that was its goal. 
And the thing that was amazing about that is when you're sitting at that console and you're watching that magic happen, it'll go past other satellites where the signal is perfectly clear. But it's not what we were looking for and not what I was set on the course for. When it's not lined up with a satellite, what you get is white noise and static. And all of that noise gets in the way until it locks into the signal that you were looking for. And then the picture and the sound couldn't be clearer. The life of faith works that way. There's so much noise, so much noise in social media and the news that surrounds us that oftentimes what we need to find is a way past the other signals, past the white noise of our experiences, of our struggles, to just be able to lock ourselves in with God's intent for us. To close, I want to take us back to the, to the literal shoreline, to that image of those early sailors not willing to risk going out too far. They wanted that sense of confidence that they could see the shore, that no matter where they went, they could get back to land. And a disciplined life in God works a little bit like that. The more we can keep God in our vision, the more we can keep locked into His hope for us, the more confidence and trust we will build in our journeying together. But I want to be very clear. If in that analogy there comes a point where we find ourselves tossed away from shore by life's circumstance, God is there. If it feels like we've gone from having a confidence in the direction we're headed to feeling like we're just in a dinghy and we can no longer see the shore, but we see the 30-foot the waves and the chaos of life, God is there. When it feels like we are being called into new opportunities as a church, God is there. When we're feeling that nudge for new missional opportunities, God is there. When we are challenged about who is in the pew with us and who ought to be from our lives, God is there. And when we try the new things on the new Paseos in our walk, our faith together, and things don't work out like we planned, and we have to go, well, that didn't work. We tried something new. What's the next new thing? God is there. I'm so grateful for that kind of God that's going to meet us wherever we are, wherever God is needed. God is there. Let's pray together.